Hi, everybody. Welcome to the containment unit. This is Janine Melnitz. What can I do for you? Put on your bunny slippers. It's slime for the Ghostbusters containment unit podcast with your hosts, Matt and Tom. Welcome to another episode of the containment unit. Uh, I'm Tom. Here with me today for eternity uh, is my my brother from another mother, uh, Matt Alicious, Mattitude himself, Matt Sanders. Every time you add another word to it, and I have to say, I just appreciate it that much more. I know. I'm going to start going into like uh, Batman things and just instead of Batman, it'll be Mattman. So, spoiler. I wouldn't hate that. Yeah. Matt, how are you? What's going on? Yeah, I'm doing good, Tom. I'm doing good, hanging in there, busy, uh, spending more money than I thought I would be uh, over the last couple of weeks. But I've been selling a lot to make up for it. So, uh, so you know, mailbag not so great today, mm-hmm. but give me another week or two, and I'll have some stuff to share. But I'm I'm doing well, Tom. How about yourself? I'm worried about you spending all that money because what are you going to do when I have a fire sale? I will uh, regret a lot of what I bought. Yeah, see. Uh, I'm doing well as well. It is uh, busy uh, in my uh, normal life. I started a new job uh, at the beginning of the month, and so that's pretty busy. And then I got got some other stuff going on. It's busy, busy, busy. Uh, mailbag is also not so great for me. Um, I, I dropped off the uh, the legendary uh, Harold Ramis patch at the Framer. I well, I didn't drop the patch oh. off at the Framer. I was going to say that I, I would be a mess. No, no, no. Uh, I left. I gave them all the dimensions and stuff, and and they're working on the frame. <clears throat> uh, and I actually did something pretty awesome for it. I told you, you you talked me into it, but uh, it was Derek's idea originally. Derek Osborne, friend of the show. And uh, I reached out to this company in New Zealand and I was able to get uh, enough screen accurate tan herringbone fabric from the Ghostbusters 2 flight suits to uh, mount the patch on in the frame. And so it was very expensive and it's going to look very cool. uh, It's going to look fantastic. It's a museum piece, that's for sure. Yeah, it was the, the frame job was not cheap because I don't do glass. Uh, I do acrylic, you know, because of shattering and stuff. And then uh, all archival and the matting and uh, and stuff. I'll post a picture in the group once it's done. But it should be a couple weeks out, I think. No, I, I mean I'm excited to see it. Yeah. I'm. Ex- hey, uh, random. We did not talk about this in the rundown, uh, or what little rundown we have. But we had a rundown. Big news in the autograph world, Tom. Oh. Are you excited about Huey Lewis? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Huey, uh, I've had a couple opportunities at him in person, and it's not gone well. Uh, because he lives out here in San Diego, and he always drives himself. And I don't know what his vehicle looks like, so he's, he kind of sneaks in and sneaks out of stuff. But uh, big big name. Uh, big in the Back to the Future world. I mean, hey, you could even get him to sign a Ghostbusters thing because he, he sued <laughs> Ray Parker. That's the true. Piece. There you go. That's true. So let me ask. Let me ask you this. Uh, One forty is the starting price, from what I see through official picks. Which great company. Uh, I I recommend them. Uh, how do you feel about that price? Do you think that's justified, or do you think that's high? Because I've heard. I've seen some people talk about how high they think that is. But 
it didn't hit me that way. I think it's okay. The thing I don't like is the nickel and diming of quotes and character names and all that stuff these days. Um, that that's really come about in the past couple of years, and it's very similar to what the sports world does. And and we've even encountered it a couple times uh, in our signings, where we have to charge for that. So the one forty and whatever, and I think it's it's like two hundred on a poster or close to two hundred. I, I that's fine, but the fact that you have to pay for everything else additionally, like. He was supposed to do the Hollywood show in L.A., and it got canceled. And had he been there, it's like you probably could have paid 70 bucks, and he would have done whatever he wanted. And, it, and I just lament that because there's no way I'm going to pay $300 for Power of Love or something. Um, but I, I think the base price is fine. And, you know, time is money, so I understand it. But it just it breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it has to do with... Like you said, he didn't show up at a show that he was expected to. A lot of people were hoping to. Back to the Future because of the 35th anniversary. Very big, very popular. People were excited. They got most everybody. So they've been wanting. A lot of stuff is waiting, especially since Michael J. Fox just did a signing a few days ago for a few different companies. This is like the last, the last piece for a lot of people. Right. You know, Crispin Glover would be a good one. Um, that's but I that's true he, he won't do a signing but you can get him at his shows did have you ever done his show have you ever sat through his movies yeah unfortunately i have it was awful would you recommend it no pay somebody to go i i know some people that paid that that sold slots and so they had to go sit through it and they they charged a lot of money to do it because it's a painful evening and it's very very long i think i was there for like seven hours or something um but, you know, I think this is good to touch on because, like, the the quotes, I, I've seen some comments about, like, the, the song lyrics and the quotes and the character names and stuff. And people were like, well, why, why am I paying $300 for the autograph and then another 140 for Margot Robbie to, to sign Harley Quinn? But, like, think about, you know, Margot Robbie signs her name and then she has to add Harley Quinn. You know, instead of signing Harley Quinn, she could have signed her name again in that time, right? So every time you add a quote or a character name or something, you're losing time for another autograph. And sometimes signings aren't based on the number of pieces. They're based on the amount of time with the signer. And so you have to, you have to make sure that you have compensation. You're getting paid for that time. Right. Each second counts. Right. And not to mention, it probably takes them a lot longer to sign a character name than their own signature because that's not the normal. That's not the normal. They're not used to it. It's, yeah. You can do it thoughtlessly. And if you get one of these long ass quotes that people love so much, you know, that takes even more time. Hey, so. I'm one of those guys. So you need to calm down. <laughs> you know what my biggest pet peeve is when somebody asks us for a quote from somebody who doesn't say anything in the movie. No, I, that is, I know it's like they make up words that they think yeah. that stay put should have said. Yeah. I came close to that once though with Paul Rudd. I had him sign the line that he said in the the announcement video i think he says i just slimed myself and when he signed it he was like i don't say this in the movie like he didn't remember that he said that in the video and i was like well now i feel like an asshole well that that's actually cutting edge news pretty soon this interview is going to be shared all over the place because you just spoiled the fact that he does not say that in the film <laughs> great great i can't wait uh so did we talk about the surprise signing on last week's show? Or did that come up after the show? I can't remember. That came up after the fact. 
We had a surprise signing last week. Tell us all about it. Uh, the Washington Square Ghost Duo. So uh, for those of you who didn't know, in Ghostbusters 2, the Washington Square Ghost, for a while I think Tom went unknown as to where that came from or who helped. Uh, and that was because Phil Tippett and Randy Dutra, they worked on it together, but they didn't receive credit for it. They didn't get any anything in the credits and they didn't ask for it. They didn't want it. They were helping out friends. And so our buddy Hector is lining up a signing with Randy Dutra. And then this summer, there'll be a signing with Phil Tippett. And so we have a quick, should be a really quick and easy piece to get done. Yeah, so we we had uh, we had those shots on hand, actually, um, because we, we had tried to get uh, Phil Tippett through the mail last year. But uh, we quickly put together a project piece, and we offered some 8x10s. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, it's closed and sold out, maybe. Um, Sorry, should have yeah. moved, moved quicker. But yeah, it's kind of neat. Came out of nowhere, uh, so it'll be a nice one, and it, it complements our uh, our ghost projects pretty well. And the prints came out nice. They did, yeah. They look they look great. They're sitting back here, actually. I gotta gotta mark those up tonight and send them on their way. Uh, what else do we got? We have any updates on our signings? I feel like a lot has happened lately. Uh, yep. Robin we, Shelby. Yep. Soon. Very, very soon. And then uh, Eldo, which uh, Eldo Ray Estes is a signing that we're doing through the mail, which we clearly communicated that ahead of time. Uh, the stuff is in the mail uh, and on its way to Eldo. And the stuff for Laura Summer is same thing, same situation there. And uh, it's pretty much packed. And ready to go. I'm also just waiting to find out the address to which to send it. So okay. we'll get there. And uh, Billy Bryan will be closing soon. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Might even be a little sooner than what we thought, right? Yeah. Tom? We, yeah. We may have to close that one a little early due to timing of the signing. So Billy's uh, coming up. We have uh, we have something coming up with a, another bill as well i like how you did that look look at look at you getting good with transitions the more we do this you're just slaying those transitions I'm a, i am the Segway slayer that's my my nickname in the on the street uh so maddie we weren't sure we're sure now uh, travel is booked uh the the murray brothers golf tournament is happening happening at the end of the month um so they say so they say i don't uh, they're very confident about it, so uh, I'll be coming to see you in Florida. Uh, it's it's a little different than we expected, which I guess we should have expected because of COVID. But you know, one of the things that that we were looking forward to was watching the tournament, and uh, they're not allowing spectators this year. Yeah, they've got quite a few COVID protocol restrictions, um, but uh, I get it and I'm trying to be sensitive to it. Uh, it's not exactly how I hoped it would work out, but uh, hey, it's happening. We're going to be there. We'll still get to lay our eyes on Bill in the flesh, which I know that's not a new thing for you, but it is for me, so I'm excited. Yeah, and we get to go to the parties. There's a couple parties they do. So we get to go to the indoor parties, but not the outdoor tournament, and we'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> Figure that out. Yeah. So we're going to go. Uh, so tell, you know, Matt, you know, we promised an update sort of to our listener. Uh, 
has have the rules you know what we're going to actually get versus kind of what we expected has that changed your strategy at all for the tournament you know it's funny because we haven't really talked about this between you and i yet no i mean outside of just the initial shock of getting all the rules which we have to follow and getting a few nasal swabs or pricks and whatnot but um oh they're gonna get a couple pricks all right I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know I, I think my expectations went way low so right. um i just feel like the opportunity to get around bill it's going to be minimized to a large, very large degree. So now at the same time, I know that if Bill is happy and possibly drinking a little bit, there's nothing that's going to stop him from doing what he wants to do. But I don't think signing autographs is high on that wants to do list. I had a very nice thought last night, a fleeting moment that you and I were at the the venue together and he was sitting at a table and he's like, Come on over, guys. What do you got? And he like he signed for us. Uh, I mean, he probably hasn't signed an autograph in a while, Tom. Probably. I don't think he's going to start now. But uh, I, I would. I'm not going to say how many things that I need him on. Uh, it's a lot, and I'm going to bring them all with me, and I'm going to have them because the worst thing you can do is be underprepared. Uh, I actually even printed a couple things, uh, just in case, and so I'm going to bring it all. Oh, me too. And I'm going to bring money, and I'm going to hope that the opportunity presents itself. The the, po the Afterlife poster is still number one for me, and, uh, you know, it's the easiest thing to get signed. Uh, you know, color-wise, placement-wise, doesn't matter. Carrying a poster around ain't, ain't no peach, but... Uh, yeah. You know. <sighs> See, I think my, my number one priority has not changed, and that is to finish the cast piece from Ghostbusters 1. It's got everybody but him, I think. But now, since I was able to get a couple of Harold signed trading cards, my desire to get Bill on a trading card has gone up pretty high. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I even, and this is because it's it's your fault. I have a Cryptozoic custom I spent 30, 40 bucks on. Feels like forever ago now to get a custom cryptozoic done for bill because he's not in the set and uh so i'm sitting on that but i that's not high on my priority list i don't think so do you have dan and Acro uh, dan and ernie on i have ernie i don't have dan yet for some reason dan is super expensive in that set i would say now that you have harold on a tops card i think that tops card should be your priority if it was me and there's a great murray card too where he's like it's when they're at the ecto uh, and and it's kind of got that green light. Yeah. It's kind of, oh yeah, I've got two of those cards in there. Yeah. Plus there's another one that's uh, Bill Murray is Peter Venkman type yeah. character card, which is great. But uh, so I say all that to say, I'll be ready. I, I've got yeah. tons of stuff and we've got stuff for Brian Doyle Murray to sign. Um, and who knows who else is going to be there. Yeah, so, I mean, there's other celebrities too. It is, a you know, they do bring their celebrity friends out, so I don't really know what to expect. You know, what's what one of the selling points of the tournament that's interesting to me is they talk about how the celebrities walk around and they sell, they have like signed scripts or whatever, but like there's nobody walking around. Who are you going to sell that stuff to? So I have to wonder, you know, how this event will go. I really have no no idea at this point. I know they typically do a charity auction. 
Yeah. And they sell signs at the after party, right? Right. And uh, during some of our discussions, trying to get a Murray signing, um, they told me that they were going to have afterlife posters signed at the auction. So I don't know if that's still the case or not. I'll straight up buy an afterlife poster and start over if it's signed by him, if I have to. I mean, honestly, if there's a couple, I might join you. I mean, I love that poster. It is. And, you know, the, the names I have on it weren't entirely difficult in normal circumstances. So I feel like I can get them again. Do you think so? Here's the question, though. If it's an afterlife poster, will it be an actual real poster or is it going to be one of their great quality reprints? And or will it have a real signature or will it have Bill's, you know, stamp? You're making me want to put my head in an alligator's mouth. <laughs> You can do that here in Florida. I might. I might. You know, it's like the tournament is something we've looked forward to for a long time. For me, it's like the wind was knocked out of my sails a little bit. But we also don't have much of a choice because if we don't go, we forfeit quite a lot of money. Um, Yeah. So it's like we can either spend a little more money and go or forfeit a lot of money and not go and and um you know the choice is fairly easy i guess but yeah no we i think i've resigned myself to in my head rational that if we're there and even if we don't get to meet him but we get to see bill get on stage and just do his murray like antics i you know it's going to be fun We'll be there together. It'll be a great night. It'll be a great day. And uh, we'll probably try to find a way to sneak ourselves into getting access at different parts too. So at least yeah. we have a reason to be there. Yeah, I don't mean to complain about it. You know, we're still going to have a good time. Uh, it's just damn it, COVID. So here, here's what I've been trying to wrap my head around, Tom, because this, you know, IP graphing is not a big thing for me. I've, I've not done that historically, especially not with photos. How, what do you, what do I need to do to prep photos? Like, am, am I, am I, am I trying to, I have foam board. Do I need to create a board? Am I going to leave them in Itoyas? Am I like, what, what do you think the strategy needs to be there? I think you should get Mike Sheffield to return my eight by 10 board. Um, <laughs> that'd be good. Uh, I, yeah, I guess for photos on, yeah, I would put them on something. Um, I haven't thought about that really. I mean, you but then, but then we're carrying it around. I guess we could yeah. carry a bag with us, but I mean, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put the eight by tens in a top loader. And, uh, I mean, you'll have time to pull it out of the top loader if you see bill. And then I, I'm not going to mess with boards. You could do the same thing with an Itoya. Yeah, you could. I have an 11 by 14. So I'll have that probably, I guess, in a top loader. And then I uh, I also have a 12 by 18, but I, I don't know that I'm even going to bring it. Um, I guess I will. It's just that's going to be hard to carry around. It'd have to be rolled or something. Well, that's the, then, yeah, because my poster too. Yeah, well, I mean, you can just roll the poster and just carry that in your hand like a sword or something, right? That's and, fun. Uh, yeah, so I'm just going to do that and have it ready to go. So I can just, I mean, that's... I, I hate carrying posters around because they, they give, they give away what you're trying to do. You know what I mean? Like there's no way to low key hide a poster. 
I think my my fear is it, at the after party. Uh, I guess we could run out to the car and drop things off and come back in, but I don't want to be hanging around with that in my hands the whole time. I don't know that you have an option. I'm going to wear my, my, my satchel and I'll have the photos in there. And yep. then the, I gotta, gotta carry the poster. I'm not going to take the chance of taking it out to the car. Cause God knows where we're going to even be parked at this thing. Like, well, I, and and who knows if they'll let us back in. It may be one of those things that once we're in, we're kind of locked in. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's There's a lot of unknowns. We don't have anything planned. The only thing I know is this. I know when I fly in, and regrettably, I know when I fly out because it's not – it's going to be a pain. We're going to have a rough Saturday because I have to, my flight leaves at like 8 a.m. from Orlando. <laughs> so we have you're making drive. me wake up way yeah. too early yeah unless we go the night before we'd have to, but uh, we got to figure that out because we have the room that night too in st augustine but we'd save a couple bucks if we wanted to but when does the after party end it's like you either gonna have a real late night or a real early morning so <sighs> it is what it is we'll figure it out yeah speaking of real late nights uh, or real early mornings. We have a great interview for you today. With... You killed. You just slayed another transition. <laughs> I know, on. right? Uh, Steve Johnson. Um, you know, I hope Steve listens to this. He won't. But that dude is like, I, I want to be his best friend, number one. Uh, he's like Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man. He's like Tony Stark, but in yep. life. He is, that. that is his personality. And uh, I got to have a drink with him. It was super cool. Uh, I am jealous of that. Uh, well, hey, it'll happen when you're out here. But um, yeah, when we went and did the signing, we met at a little, uh, like a little pub um, last summer, and it was awesome. We hung out and we we talked for a while, and we just uh, we hung out, and then we eventually did the signing too, and and it was cool. And uh, he's he's great. He's he's. Um, He's just such a fun and, uh, I don't know, interesting, I guess is the best word. Well, And he's he's a great storyteller. Yeah, and he's hilarious. He, he is, but part of the reason why he's funny is because he's just so blunt, direct, and yeah. honest. He gives like, no Fs. <laughs> no, and you, you don't have to wonder what he's thinking. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of the fun in this interview is that especially when we talk about Slimer and how Slimer looks in Ghostbusters 2 compared to Ghostbusters 1. His thoughts on uh, on Ghostbusters 2 Slimer is very candid, and uh, very, it's, it's fun to listen to and fun to be part of. Yeah, and and Steve is, is somebody who we're, we're hoping to see again this year. Uh, he's part of the Boss Film Project, and we hadn't started that project yet, so he needs to sign that. But also some people, as we discussed previously, they, they missed out on Slimer projects. Uh, I think that you and I need him again on stuff. I know I need him on a couple somehow that I missed last time. I don't know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're hoping to see him again. I haven't talked to him about it recently. We we touched base on it, but, um, you know, maybe the summer or something we'll set it up. Uh, yeah. We talked about doing a bunch in, in, random, in like, close order. Um, so maybe that'll happen, but... Uh, if you still need Steve, he's he's coming again at some point. Matt, do you have anything that you want to share with our audience? 
Tom, the only thing I want to remind everybody of and keep at the forefront of everybody's mind is this crazy world out there. There's a lot to be frustrated by. There's a lot to be frustrated at. There's a lot of things that happen that are out of our control. But the only thing we can control is our attitude, how we carry ourselves. And so with that, let me just remind you, don't be a peck. Don't be that guy. Nobody likes that guy. Nobody does. Can you imagine if we ever have William Atherton on the show? <laughs> I think I think he'd appreciate that. Uh, I think he would too. Yeah. He'd I'm still like, waiting on someone. Years. I'm still waiting on someone to mock up that shirt for us, but They'll we'll see. Back. Yeah, maybe someday. Our listener uh, may not be a graphic designer. Uh, so without further ado, uh, strap in. We got a great, candid, uh, explicit interview uh, with with special effects legend. Steve Johnson. Hold on to your butts. Uh, welcome, Steve. How's quarantine going for you over there? Hey, how are you guys? Uh, how do you think it's going? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, you know, we, great. Went, we, we went, but thank God I got my haircut uh, because I went four months without a haircut. And my God, Bozo called. He needs his hair back by five. You're okay. It looked so fucking awful. And you know, even though nothing's open, I when the when the hair salon's opened, I finally rushed down, got my hair cut. Um, because you know, even if nobody else is going to see me, except on things like this, I see myself in the mirror all the time, and I look like shit for four fucking months. So I went and got my hair cut, thank God, <laughs> because now all the hair salons are shut down again, and everything's shut down again. And you know, I'm not. I've become over the years not nearly as, particularly since I've been writing a lot, not nearly as social as I used to be, but still. It wasn't like this. It's like you just, you just can't, I mean, nobody is really stopping you from doing things, but except for yourself. But I, I've had it. I can't take it anymore. And in a way, I almost understand all these people, but, and I'm not one of them. I mean, I wear my mask and maintain social distancing and don't see friends. But uh, I can kind of understand why people have finally cracked over this. Because, oh, yeah. You know, we're human beings, we're pack animals, and you need to hug people, and you need to be around people, and fuck. But, you know, I do have this little guy. Oh, cool. Oh, there he is. <laughs> he doesn't want to. He hates it. <laughs> He's my Hemingway writing buddy. Cool. Um, so yes, that, that's how it's going. And you know, on top of everything else, the film industry is, and I'm glad we're talking about this because, you know, Ghostbusters at this point, um, it's like the Civil War. It's like, how much more can you say about it? <laughs> everything that's been said about the Civil War, yeah. and all the books that have been read, you, you, there's nothing else to say. So let's talk about something other than Ghostbusters. How do you think your fans will like that? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it is funny. We, we notice like there's like one or two new Ghostbusters documentaries that comes out, you know, per year. And basically you can kind of <laughs> quote everybody's anecdotes and stories at this point. Um, <clears throat> But, I know, but, you know, I go to conventions and, you know, I wonder how many people have sat in these audiences when I'm speaking and they ask Ghostbusters questions. How many people are like, Jesus Christ, he's like your senile great-grandmother who tells you the same story over and over again, <laughs> which has always amazed me because if you're, uh, if you're around a woman or a man that tells the same story over and over again, sometimes people react in the following way. They'll like, Jesus fucking Christ. They start to roll their eyes and go, God damn it, grandma. But the thing that's so rude about that to me is because 
to the person that's senile, it's the first time they've ever told that story. And then all their family members are reacting with hatred and boredom. It's like, why did my family get so mad at me? <laughs> Telling them a good story. That's funny. We've heard the story 20 times, Grandma. Right. Most famously, we joke about it all the time, is when Ivan Reitman tells the story of uh, his guys coming down you know, Fifth Avenue with their packs on and him having shivers go up his spine. It's like, we know about the shivers. We've been hearing about him for 36 years. We know about him. I know. And you know, one of the other problems is when you, when you get used to doing, you know, public appearances about, you know, it's not just Ghostbusters. It's all the, you know, it's like it, it, my Abyss stories, my, uh, all the stories on the bigger movies that I've done. You, you, you learn them and you learn a kind of a comedic rhythm to them. And, and particularly since I've written the series of books, the Rubberhead series, it's like they're your fallback because you, they're, they're easy to flow into that rhythm. And it's like, what happened to all the other stories? It's just, and that's another really funny thing about memory. And it's a really funny thing about writing down your memory is that, you know, obviously in my book series in Rubberhead, <clears throat> it's set in present tense. It's like you're a fly on the wall. So, you know, the conversations are happening and everything's happening in real time. So I had to elaborate. I had to nudge the truth a little bit to make the, you know, to draw the reader in and make it appear to be more fiction. Um, but what happens as a result of that is after you've read your own work a hundred times at least, which is, you know, when in the editing process, you have to, something happens and you don't remember if what you wrote is the true version or if there's some other version out there that really is the truth, <laughs> you know, because I don't know, did you guys read Rubberhead One, the Ghostbusters story? I, I was listening to the audio book and yeah. I loved how at the beginning of it, you just kind of gave that warning. This is the, the stories to the best of my knowledge and over time and things, <laughs> them, but I'm going to tell them to you like I know them. Yeah, well, I'll give you a hint. The, the ghost of John Belushi did not actually show up that night and model for me. That's an interesting dovetail. I, I had a question, a clarifying question about the, the actually the Belushi thing. So it, maybe it comes down to memory, but I've heard two different versions about the, the story you tell about uh, how overnight you had to make it more John Belushi than it was. Right. So I heard the story that you did um, and then that's what you presented. And then the other story was that you didn't make it more John Belushi. You took it in. You're like, yeah, here it is. It's John Belushi. And they were like, fantastic. This is great. Yeah, well, the second version is the truth. There's, there's no way I could have over, over yeah, yeah. It could have completely reworked that sculpture in, in the period of one night. And that's, you know, something that a lot of really good designers in this industry know, unfortunately, um, is that uh, when your art director or your producer or your production designer or your director comes in and says, make these changes, make these changes, more often than not, if you don't make them, They'll come back and go, that's right. That's exactly what I was looking for. It happens all the time. <laughs> that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So uh, let, let's go real quick. Um, for those who don't know, how did you get started in the film industry? Were you always a creative as a, as a child? Like what brought you to Hollywood? As a kid, I was always creative. I came out of the womb wanting to create things, actually. I can't remember a time when I didn't want to make things. So, you know, I discovered Hammer and, uh, you know, the Hammer classics, the, the horror films and the classic universals. And I just became incredibly enamored by it and started trying to figure out on my own in the, in the 60s in Texas, which was quite difficult because there were no schools like the Stan Winston School of Character Arts. There were no books on it. So I just had to figure it out by trial and error. Um, and 
the turning point was when I think I was 15 or 16, I met Rick Baker. He came to one of the first science fiction and horror conventions ever in Houston, Texas. I think it was called, uh, I don't know what it was called. But, uh, um, and he spoke. He had just finished King Kong and Star Wars and The Incredible Melting Man, and I had a little thin portfolio. See, I'm telling the same story I tell all the time. I'm sure you guys have heard <laughs> <laughs> I had this little thin portfolio and I worked up the nerve to meet him and uh, he gave me his phone number and said, listen, if you ever come out to California, I'll, you know, I'll see what I can do. And so as soon as I was 18, I got in my car and drove out there and knocked on his door and he said, who the hell are you? <laughs> I love how that happened. But ultimately, you know, I wasn't good enough. I didn't, you know, I hadn't practiced professional techniques at that point. So <clears throat> this was 1978. So he introduced me to both Greg Canham and Rob Bottin, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know. And I cut my teeth on their projects for the first couple of years before Rick hired me on American Werewolf in London. And that was like the first big movie I did, actually. Cool. Steve, I have a question. Is it, you, you, you've had this career that, you know, has stretched multiple decades and you've seen a lot of different versions of what works in Hollywood and what doesn't. And specifically over the past five or 10 years, you kind of have this notion that going back to more practical effects and more, you know, being a little bit less dependent on uh, CG or, or VFX, um, just high level general opinion of, of where we're at now and what we can, you know, look forward to over the next 10 years as far as innovation goes. Do you, do you kind of feel that as you're going through the motions or? Yeah, gonna... it's strange. That's a really good question because as soon as, even before Jurassic Park, the first Jurassic Park came out, you know, all of us from stop motion animators like Phil Tippett to um, all of us effects guys started going, oh my God, oh my God, there's going to be no business at all in just a handful of years. And that did happen because, you know, at that point, directors and producers and writers didn't really, I mean, the same kind of thing happened as when, you know, American Werewolf came out. All the directors and, and writers said, look, we can do anything now, man, turn into a werewolf. Let's just write whatever we want and those effects guys will figure out how to do it. So it kind of opened up filmmaking to effects uh, that had never been possible before. The same thing happened with digital around the time of Jurassic Park coming out. Filmmakers said, well, those makeup effects were great, but they can't jump and they can't smile very well and they can't run as fast as puppets. Um, and so they started writing all these movies with digital characters in them. And, that, and it was a catchphrase. And so all these young filmmakers said, well, let's go digital because it just sounded hip and it sounded cool. And they didn't even really know what digital meant back then. Uh, but it was a huge blow to our industry for years and years and years. And what's happened uh, in the past, you know, three, four, five years is a couple of things that have brought practical effects back. And um, one of them, it's really come full circle. Um, one of them is all the filmmakers that grew up on the, uh, you know, the movies of the 80s and early 90s. They were kids then. Now they're making their own movies and they want to go back to that kind of nostalgic feeling that they had when they saw the movies that we worked on. So that's one thing. And now the catchphrase is, let's go all practical. It's like the absolute opposite as it was 20 years ago. Let's go all digital. Now they're saying, let's go all practical, which is never practical. So ultimately, I mean, every script I get, every director, every writer I talk to, we're going to go all practical. And you try, but ultimately they'll cover it up with a lot of digital stuff or at least do it correctly, like Guillermo del Toro and Tim Burton do sometimes, uh, which is a blend of the two things. Um, now, the other thing that's happened is that, oh my God, you know, if, if streaming hadn't happened, I think our in industry would be dead now. I think that the digital 
comeuppance would have, would have been the nail in the coffin. But what's happened over these past 10 years is that, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, we had four, five, six customers. We had Universal, we had the television stations, the three big televisions, ABC, NBC, CBS, maybe HBO, but, you know, we, we just had the big studios and we had the big television and the big cable, and that was it. So there's a handful of customers. Can you even count how many new movies Netflix alone puts out? Now, let's talk about Hulu. All of these streaming services. Um, so the demand for effects now is 10, 20 fold what it used to be at least. And so there's a lot more effects happening right now. And the business in some ways is stronger now, I think because of that, because there's a huge demand for effects. I mean, just look at, you know, 20 years ago, nobody said, well, let's make a dead body for an autopsy. They just put a human on the autopsy table, you know, with maybe a, a Y incision on it. But now, you know, the, the, the go-to is to make a full-on dead body, which costs $20,000 at least, maybe 50. Um, you know, and we, there's just so much demand for the stuff right now that it's really created a resurgence. On the other hand, along with the virus, maybe we can get into that right now a little bit, but um, it's, it's, it's really, because there are so many companies now, we know that Stan Winston, unfortunately, has passed away. We know that Rick Baker closed his studio. We know that I closed mine. We know that Rob Bottin's out of the picture. So who does that leave? You know, from the old guard that leaves... ADI. Kevin Yeager works very, very rarely when he wants to. I think he just did the new Bill and Ted film. Um, but there's like nobody left from the old days, right? So every other company that's fighting for this work right now is the new regime. And they're the young goth kids with the purple hair and the tattoos. <laughs> and they are fighting like rabid hyenas for scraps. You know, so the price goes down and down and down. The, the, the time frame for building goes down and down and down. And so the business is very, even though there's more work right now, the business is much more cutthroat, I think, than it was. And the prices have gone down and the build times have gone down. And it's very difficult and, and, and almost impossible, very, very rare to see something that was created with painstaking love and care like we used to see in the 80s and 90s. It's usually just done as quickly as possible. You know, I mean, there are some incredible studios. Odd Studio is one of my favorite studios. The one in Australia, do you know those guys? Um, maybe if I saw some of the stuff they were, were doing. Yeah, they're amazing. I mean, they're, they're, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, right now there's, a, there's a, a huge, very talented company in almost every country in the world. I mean, there are great people in France. There are obviously great people in England. Uh, there's great people in Canada. The, I know a couple of people in Mexico. Um, <clears throat> It's, um, I mean, the, the, the talent hasn't shrunk just because of the, just because of the timeframes and the, uh, and the budget shrinking, Yeah. but, but, but they have. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that all the, the internet for once, so all of this information is, is shared much more readily. And, uh, secondly, things like the Stan Winston school. And, you know, it's more of a global community now. I mean, I think that the effects industry has become so much more of a, a huge family than it used to be because of the internet. We're always, you know, sharing ideas and showing our work and everybody talks and everybody learns from it. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a good side and there's a bad side. No money, no time, but all this talent, all this information, all this knowledge shared so freely all over the world. Well, that's very cool. Thank, thanks for sharing that. That's really good insight. I mean, um, as somebody who's a complete outsider, I, I don't know the inner workings of 
the film industry, let alone the subset of the special effects industry. But um, I bet it's uh, it's a unique perspective that you have having, you know, lived through it and see these changes kind of in, in real time. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, this, this, listen, the state of the art, no matter what the prices and timeframes are, the state of the art is getting better and better and better and better. I mean, I'm losing my mind, but the fact, the fact is the, um, the techniques that we use and the materials that we use have had to evolve along with filmmaking techniques. I mean, high definition. I mean, I'm, just, I'm reading, they're starting to go with 12K, 12K. What, are you going to be able to see around things? You're going to have to see things? What do you need 12K for? But what that means is, um, you know, a movie like, uh, the, or a makeup like uh, Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hour, or what's his name in Vice? Who played the Dick Cheney in Vice? Oh, uh, Christian Bale. Yeah, and all the stuff Kazoo is doing, um, those makeups on, uh, what's that What's that new movie? God damn it. Uh, with the three girls that are wearing prosthetic makeups, Nicole Kidman and... Oh, don't know. Bombshell, bombshell. <laughs> Oh, right, right, right. These makeups are unbelievable. And there's an old makeup, old age makeup on John Lithgow that is one of the best, maybe the best old age makeup I've ever seen. But here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> producers, directors used to be really afraid of putting someone in a foam rubber likeness makeup or an age makeup because that's an opaque product. Foam rubber is inherently white. And you've got to be Vincent Van Gogh to break up the, the color and, 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 ha- and trick the camera into thinking it's translucent because skin is translucent. And then the edges are always a problem, particularly around the eyes, because that skin is so thin and translucent there, and how do you get under the eyelashes? And if you have a bad makeup, what that's going to do, it's basically going to pull the audience right out of your movie. And it'll ruin your movie. It's a lot of responsibility. Now, with the new uh, high-definition stuff, guess what? That we had to evolve. And what that's, once again, doing is that's allowing producers and directors and writers to say, Oh my God, we can do anything. We can do a bunch of old age makeups. We can do likeness makeup. So we're seeing a lot more of that for, again, two reasons, because one, we're using silicone, which is translucent and the edges are so easy to blend. They practically blend themselves. They are invisible, almost in person. It's so different. It's a game changer than compared to foam rubber. Um, And then secondly, it takes much less time to paint because it's translucent already. It's already intrinsically colored the same color generally as the skin of your actor so it doesn't take as much time to paint um and jesus christ and also you know it it, it holds up in close-ups on hd and so we're seeing crazy beautiful dick smith is spinning in his grave right now the god the godfather (laughs) of our industry who did the exorcist um Godfather, Taxi Driver, Amadeus, all of these things. If only he were still around to see what's happening, because you, you see these makeups just constantly pop up online and in major, major movies that nobody would have ever attempted before, because like I said, it could potentially ruin the film. Now, the other thing about it is if there's a problem, because there are problems always with techniques, edges start lifting, the sweat underneath the skin creates bubbles. Well, guess what? In the old days, if you had an edge lifting or if you had a problem, that was it. Your audience saw that on a 40-foot screen, but now it can be digitally touched up. So the producers are very calm about it now because even though the makeup techniques are better and the quality is better, if there is indeed a problem, 
it can be fixed. Right. It's interesting. It's kind of like the, the technology kind of dictates that the, the, uh, uh, everything has to catch up with each other. So, so nobody can, you, you, you have to develop these new techniques in order to, uh, you know, if you're going to have 12 K or, or I didn't even know there was another K I knew, I've heard of eight, but I didn't know. I didn't know you could get past eight. I know from, at least from my reading, you're a huge Stephen King fan. Yes. And you had the opportunity to, I assume, work with him on the stand. And yes. uh, from what I was, my understanding is he kind of encouraged you or, or at least I guess motivated you to write Rubberhead. And I just wanted to kind of hear about the book and the genesis of that and how that is going currently because I know it's going to be five volumes and you know where you're at with that. <clears throat> yeah, well, I guess strangely enough at two o'clock just well on my time zone just an hour and a half ago I had a conference call with my publisher and uh, well, you know, I mean, I, in 2006, I closed my doors because I, I was like thinking, well, this industry's dead because of digital revolution. And even if it's not dead, I'm going to be working out of a sweaty garage instead of a beautiful 20,000 square foot state-of-the-art facility like I had. And, you know, there'll never be these multi-million dollar contracts again, which I was dead wrong. I mean, take a look. I just saw that new uh, uh, Kristen Stewart film, Underwater. Have you seen that? Uh, not yet. Yeah. I, heard, I heard some good stuff, though. Well, take a look at, at the, 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 the deep docking suits for that. I mean, they're outrageous. And there's at least six of them. They had to work underwater. They're, 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 you know, they're stunt versions, all of this. Um, that's a huge endeavor. I'm not 100% with the design, but they're, they're outrageous. I mean, that was a multi-million dollar project. So, um, fuck, why did I bring up underwater? What were we talking about? Uh, just uh, the uh, your publisher, yeah. <laughs> Uh, rubberhead, rubberhead, rubberhead. Oh yeah, so I, I thought the industry was 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 dying, and boy was I wrong about that. Although we did have a huge slump for years and years, and at, at that time I went to Costa Rica and I started writing, and I wrote a couple of fiction novels, and uh, came back to I, I moved back to Texas, not to California, so I could be around my family for a while, and uh, I moved to Austin, I moved to God, where else? I went to Tennessee for a while, I went to. Louisiana for a while. I went all over the place, just writing and trying to lick my wounds from the film industry. Um, and, you know, I, I couldn't get published. I just could not get my fiction work published because it was all fiction. I couldn't get my fiction work published. And so all the agents and all the publishers I spoke with said, look, you've got somewhat of a name in the film industry, uh, write about the film industry. And so when I finally moved back to California, which I don't even remember when it was, 2010 maybe, um, I just picked up my pen and I thought, okay, you know, I don't want to make this a regular memoir where it starts out when I was born and gradually goes through chronologically my life. I want to pick uh, the, the, the funniest stories, the most outrageous stories, the saddest stories on the biggest movies with the biggest actors I've worked with. And so that's kind of how it came about. And uh, originally, you know, it's, it was like a thousand pages and I didn't even want to have photos in it. I wanted it to be more like an Anthony Bourdain kitchen confidential thing, which was kind of, you know, exposed the underbelly of the, of the restaurant industry. But, you know, I couldn't get it published. I couldn't get it published. It was a thousand page book. What was I thinking? And so finally I broke it into five volumes. And yes, volume two is running obscenely late on the Kickstarter. And, um, the book's finished. Here it is. There it is. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Cool. However, we're having a really hard time because I, I'm with a new publisher this time. Um, and uh, 
you know, from delay to delay to delay, unfortunately, we ended up putting our order in right as the virus kicked in because we're printing in China this time. I guess I don't even mm -hmm. need to explain what happened. Nope. <laughs> the, the, the printer shut down. They recently reopened, but they're three months behind in the queue. And then it's three months from then to get them printed and, and shipped to me. So we're still a long way out on that. But you know, that's how rubber had started. Um, and it, obviously some of you guys have read it. Anybody read it? Yep. I love the section where you talked about working with Michael Jackson. That it, it was a, a long chapter, but it just, just the, even though the storytelling, just the ups and downs of the whole thing. Um, and then you figured out how to turn him into a robot. And then they fired me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? What I've found about this, this series so far, because I have just to, you know, satiate the, the Kickstarter backers on volume two. I sent out the, the ebook and I've gotten nothing but really, really good reviews on it. But, you know, a lot of people don't like to read these days. The, the attention span is so, they just look at the pictures, you know, which kills me because to me, first and foremost, <laughs> these books, this series of books is, you know, obviously, you know, you jerk off and look at the pictures of your favorite movies. That's great. I understand that. I do it too. <laughs> hey, look, Scooby-Doo. But, uh, <laughs> Exact quote, exact quote. I've said that. But, the, but, the, but you know, I'm really proud of the writing because like I said, I had written several, many, many, many short stories and I think three finished novels, fiction novels. And so I really had cut my teeth on figuring out how to write a narrative by the time I started Rubberhead. And it kills me that people don't, that's not their first and foremost thing because you know, it's a, it is a weird book. You know, it's very weird. And it's going to get weirder as the volumes continue because <laughs> volume two is very much, there's a ghost story with woven in and out of it. Um, cool. it volume two basically concentrates on uh, um, the greatest hits of the 80s. I mean, it covers Fright Night, it covers Big Trouble in China, Poltergeist 2. Um, I don't even remember, I have to look now. Um, but, you know, to me, it's, 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 uh, it's not just a picture book. It's not just an art book. It's a, it's a book book. Yeah, and, and I love too on the audio book that you break the rules. So you'll interject with some thoughts that you're thinking as you're reading it and not just reading it verbatim. And Oh, I totally go off script. I know. And I'm dying to do the ver audio version on this because that was a blast. It was so fun. It took about four or five nights, about four hour sessions each. But uh, unfortunately, the guy, uh, they're actually, uh, in, it, we're in production right now on a documentary based on the book series documentary called Rubberhead oh, awesome. and special effects. Yeah. We've been shooting for about a year now, but um, the guy that's going to do, do going to record the, uh, the audiobook for volume two is in New York. He's my producer for volume uh, for, for the documentary. And uh, you know, he's taking care of his 85 year old dad and he doesn't want to fly. And so everything's fucked up and on hold now because of this. Yep. Steve, I had a question. Um, you're very associated, obviously, with Ghostbusters in our community. Everybody knows the stories about the creation of Slimer and, and, and you know, all of that. One thing, though, uh, I'm a collector. I'm a toy collector. I'm, I'm as you can probably see behind me. Um, when it comes to toys and when it comes to the designs of Slimer, Green Ghost, over the years, whether it be, you know, uh, maquettes or, or models or statues or, you know, what we saw in the last Ghostbusters movie or maybe the next one we don't know yet what do you think it is that i feel like they never get it right like nobody's they never actually capture exactly what you designed 
there's obviously a lot of subtleties to the design that make it so stand out, but the, the, the Ghostbusters one Slimer specifically is obviously, you know, the best. Uh, it's the first and the best. And they just, when I say they, I mean just anybody who tackles a replication of, a, of any kind, they never quite nail it. I, I, I I'm glad you mentioned that, but I couldn't agree with you more. And it's offensive to me. <laughs> Uh, and I think there's a couple of, re it is, I think there's a couple, like if you take a look, and I, I've gone on public record saying this before, and I know the sculptor quite well, Mark Siegel, he worked on Ghostbusters 1, but he sculpted the, the Slimer for Ghostbusters 2, and there's so many inherent problems with that, it's awful. And that, that was just like what, a year and a half later, it's fucking awful. It's terrible, not only does it look terrible, but uh, they, they show, I've seen the interior mechanics, but they, they took the exact opposite approach that I did to it, whereas it's, it's, it's just so crammed full of motors and they're not even uh, hydraulic, which are smooth motors and not servos, which are somewhat smooth. It's, uh, it's pneumatic, which is like chirk, 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 air motors, air motors. This is a horrible. And so therefore you don't get any wobble of the skin. You don't get the big mouth thing happening. You don't get the brows squinching. You don't get any of that Tex Avery cartoon stuff because when we did volume when we did Ghostbusters 1, my whole goal was to make it like, to, to not use what Rick Baker or Rob Bottin or Greg Cannon taught me, where you just stick a bicycle cable and, you know, make it smile. I wanted to get these huge cartoon. So there's just a bunch of people sticking their hands in it, wearing black suits. Uh, there's rods inside of it. There's all the, even the tongue is a, a glove. Um, so I, I just don't know. I, I, I think sometimes, not in Mark's case, who did the... Uh, yeah. Hey, stop it, buddy. Stop that. When he's hungry, you know what he does? He, he does one of two things. He sneaks up behind me. Stop. He sneaks up behind me and just slides his needles right into my back. And it's yeah. like, oh my fucking God. I love That's that. Not a good way. But the other thing he'll do when he's really hungry is he'll, uh, he'll sit on my desk and he'll just not put his claws out at all, but he'll just very softly touch my face. That one works. Um, what were we talking about? Yeah, so, so Mark's a good sculptor. Um, part of it is because that thing was so amorphous and so blobby and because it did indeed change shapes all the time. Um, so every still you look at it, it looks like a different sculpture. So people are like, I don't even know what I'm sculpting because what is it, you know, it looks different in all the different scenes because it is. And I've had the same problem. I sculpted a, a Slimer mask for Spirit Halloween stores a, a couple of years back. And they kept sending pictures to me and saying, no, 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 this isn't right. And they would send me a, you know, a picture of Slimer from Ghostbusters 2 or that horrible bank. Have you seen that bank? Yeah. It looks like a turd that was painted green. It's so yeah. bad. Yeah. That so horrible. So, you know, that proves it. They're like telling the guy that designed it and sculpted the first one that my Slimer doesn't look like the one from the movie because they're sending me a picture from, right. you know, and then you've got the cartoon, you've got all this other stuff. I'll tell you one thing though. Um, lately, the designs have been getting a lot better for one good reason. Maybe a couple. I put out a, a little Slimer figure on the first Kickstarter. Did you guys see that, the glowing Slimer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yep, there's one know, behind me over here. <laughs> there's pictures of it. Uh, the, the people have it, and so they can see exactly what it looks like. And secondly, NECA and one other company put out the full scale one from a sculpture that I, I, I commissioned. Have you seen the big one? Yeah, yeah, I got a buddy who has the, uh, the NECA one. 
Yeah, so that's based on, that, that, that was, is a remold off of a sculpture that I had a guy named Andy Schoenberg do at my studio as a display piece because the originals were long lost. So, you know, he had access to all the original photos. He had me art directing it. And so now that's out there. And so now there's a lot more, you know, three-dimensional real-world reference. So I'm seeing some products that are actually pretty good now. Getting better. And do you, I mean, it's kind of weird, like, so you were at FanFest last year, and it's kind of cool to get all the, even though the, the event itself was... FanFest, where was that? That was the one on the Sony lot. The uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A little cha- we were all there. A little chaotic, but still fun to, you know, to get yeah. everybody together. Um, do you have any regular contact with anybody at, at Ghost Core or Sony? Do they ever hit you up for anything, whether it's, you know, ideas, reference it, you know, looking at reference photos, mm-hmm. signing off? I get stuff all the time. I'm dealing with uh, another company right now. I've been dealing with them for a few months that have the license now to do. They want they want to license my uh, the little glowing one. I mean. Oh, cool! Very cool. Uh, which is cool because all I got to do is send that to China. They're going to change the arm position, but uh, so it looks different. But um, uh, I mean, no, I can't even tell you how many people call me about selling. It's crazy. He uh, <laughs> haunts you. But you know what? What really bugs me is I was not. I mean, I, I really wanted to be involved with the new Jason Reitman thing because I know they made it. Well, even the, the all female version. Um, you know, there was a practical Slimer made for that. I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of that. Are you? Yeah, I saw some pictures of it uh, earlier this year for the first time. It, 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 it was so right up there. I don't know which one wins for worst slime or slime or Ghostbusters yeah. 2 or that. It's like no wonder they redid it digitally. I mean, it looked pretty right. However, um, my my designer of years and years and years, a, gentleman, a Greek guy named Konstantin Sakaris, who designed all my stuff with me for, for a long, long time, maybe over a decade, um, he was brought in to design the um, the uh, the digital version. Of both the female and the and the regular slimer, and uh, he did a really good job because you know he worked with me for years and he knew what it looked like, so I like that one. However, on this new Jason Reitman one, uh, and and I I called them, I, I went after them like crazy on, on the all female version, saying let me do it. I've got even better ideas this year, uh, or this time at this point, and uh, no no no, I'm probably too old school for them or whatever. But um, this time around, they hired um, Aryan. Tweeten, do you know the guy? I'm not familiar with that name. Yeah, he's one of Rick Baker's protégés, and he's really, he did that movie Wonder, that little kid that's got that weird. Yep. Uh, yeah, and he did uh, Maleficent. He did the makeup on Angelina Jolie. So he's really talented. I'm not sure <clears throat> I've ever seen him do it. Hey, buddy, get out of the way. I'm not sure I've ever seen him do a, a large-scale animatronic, but we'll see. We'll see soon enough. Yeah. But no, I just, it's, you know, it's like they, they kicked Ivan Reitman off the all-female version. They, they said basically, because Ivan was my contact on that, but they said, ah, you're too old. You don't have the sense of humor the kids want to hear. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a book that's going to be written. One day there's going to be a, a whole <laughs> lot of stuff that comes out about the production of that, that movie specifically. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, uh, I want to tag on to the Slimer conversation. I, I did have one. I don't want to be a nerd and ask a, a nerd question, Steve, but I do have one that bugged me. Yeah. Uh, Slimer has a great ass, and I just wanted to know if that was your idea, your design to give Slimer, like, all that junk in the trunk, or was it something that, that they pitched to you? Because, I mean, his ass is fantastic. 
you know. Uh, but he kind of wanted to hear lips, him. Stop saying lip smoking. Who's talking? Uh, my my uh, my image is frozen. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, no, that was actually my idea because it, I'll tell you why. Um, if you look at um, the profile of Slimer, it's got kind of a C shape where his face is up here and then his back bows in and then he's got the butt and the, the rest of the body comes up like this. And um, that, that's a very typical profile for a Tex Avery cartoon. And it also is the way Herman Munster used to walk. He would put his back in and his butt out and do this kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, if, if you look at him from a profile, he's doing that thing. And also, if you take a look at what Rob Bottin did on Explorers, same kind of thing. It's that cartoony kind of sea back with the big butt. And so I'm, I'm, I'm standing there looking at this thing and it's got the right profile. It's got the right belly shape in the front. What do I do then with that huge giant piece of clay in the back? Well, it was his butt. You know, I mean, all you would have to do is stick legs on that thing and it would look like a big fat green Herman Munster. Matt and I had a question. We, when we were searching for images of you, um, you know, for the signing we're going to be doing in the group, uh, I found one picture of you and Linda Frobos working on one of the terror dogs. Right. And that was news to, to both of us. We didn't know that you had any involvement in the terror dog. And I just wanted to know, you know, kind of what your role was there and if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that was news to me, too, when I saw that picture. I'm like, I don't even remember helping him. <laughs> but, you know, it was, you know, we had a, the, the ghost shop on, on uh, at Boss Film Corporation <clears throat> on Ghostbusters. It was just a blast. It was the first show we did there. And so we were all making up the rules as we went along. And it was just so, so much fun. It was like one of the funnest times I've ever had. Uh, because that also was the first time I was really in charge of something. So it was like a playground. I didn't have to worry about the budgets or the money. It all came from the front office. And so they just said, do whatever you want. I whoever you want. You want to stick feathers all over something? Put a man on it. We don't care. Um, so we just all jumped in and helped when we had a deadline. And so, I mean, I, it's not like I was coming in and saying, no, do it like this. I, was, I think we probably had a deadline for molding. And so we all jumped in and, and helped do it. That, well, the way Ghostbusters worked, to repeat myself ad nauseum, is that Randy Cook, the <laughs> stop motion animator, who also won three consecutive Oscars on the Lord of the Rings trilogy for uh, visual effects, uh, was my partner on that show. And so in the beginning, we, we just put the, the work up. We said, well, well, how to do this? And so I took Slimer, I took the cab driver, I took the subway ghost, I took the librarian, and uh, Randy took <laughs> the terror dogs. <laughs> it was real fair, real even split. Yeah, the, the, the state of Marshmallow Man was kind of a, you know, Basically, Bill Bryan was kind of in charge of it underneath Randy and, and I. Um, but still, Randy and I were the co-heads of the studio. And we just, Bill was talented enough. We said, hey, just make it. And, uh, if, if you need any help, we're here. So you, you did the subway ghost as well, the blue one that kind of flies out toward the end of the, like, I think it's right around the taxi uh, ghost. Yeah, it's when, well, all, all the ghosts, when all the ghosts start, start escaping. Yeah, I did. It was... Um, it's not blue, actually. Maybe it looked blue in the final film, but it was uh, a very translucent, ruddy, kind of reddish-brown color. Oh, It had iridescent powder in it, and uh, we shot that actually in a water tank. Oh. We shot it underwater. <laughs> That's so, new. As a marionette. That's fantastic. Yeah, we shot it as a marionette and a rod puppet in one of the cloud tanks at Boss Film because it was just easier because, you know, and that, that was one of the first times I actually worked underwater. I've worked underwater a lot since, obviously on the abyss, on sphere. 
Anaconda. Um, and I learned that very technique on Ghostbusters with the library ghost is that, not the library, the, the subway ghost is that, fuck, stick it in water and water does 90% of the work for you. It's very true. And uh, Steve, you know, on the, uh, on the production Ghostbusters, I, I've seen some conflicting uh, titles for you. What would you say was your actual title on the- Yeah, on they're the very conflicting and it bugs me to this day. Thank you for bringing that up actually. Uh, Rob Botin excised my name from The Howling, and I was one of his top guys for four or five months on that show. Uh, he took my name off the credits because we had a, a falling out, which annoys the shit out of me. But uh, the same thing on that. It's, it, I, don't, I think my credit is Onionhead and Librarian Sculptor. That's it? What about the cab driver? What about the librarian? What about the fact that Randy and I ran that fucking show? It should have been... Uh, you know, co-department supervisor with Randy Cook for all the ghosts and everything. I mean, we figured out, I mean, there was no difference between the way Randy and I ran that company as the way Rob Bottin or Rick Baker runs theirs. You know, you've got a guy at the top who hires a bunch of other people, art directs them and then gets in and gets their hands dirty when they can. That was exactly how we ran that show. And I was mortally offended with my credit on that. And I guess I won't care once I'm dead and then La La Land or wherever we go. But I it wasn't just you. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, we had a conversation with... Uh, everybody gives me credit for everything that we did on Boulder Guys 2. Everybody gives me credit for... Every, at Lost Film Corporation. Everything that we did on Ghostbusters. Everything that we did on Fright Night. But Randy was there. I, I think Randy just doesn't like the publicity. You know, I try to get him to go to conventions. He doesn't want to do it. I try to get him involved in... Yeah. Uh, documentaries he doesn't want to do it so basically over the years everybody just moves the credit to me which I'm perfectly fine with but I feel bad about <laughs> we can speak to Randy we've we've tried to uh, reach out to him as well for our, our group because he's he is the terror dogs and a lot of people love those and a lot of people our age they were terrified by the terror dogs when they were kids right but and uh, we'd love to, to work with him but has he gotten back no. to you? see that's my point no yeah, I should just start taking credit for the terror dogs too. Right, Randy? Would <laughs> there's a there's we have proof. We have proof. Under Frobos, that's right. <laughs> very very good. Uh, it's interesting the credit thing. Uh, just real quickly, we had a conversation with Terry Harden. I'm not sure if you worked directly with her on a, on the film or not. Um, yeah, she she also told a story. Yeah, so she tells a story about how her and Mark Wilson and and a bunch of people just didn't get credit at all and. And Richard Edlund had to take out an ad in ID, I think it was, to give them all credit after the movie hit. And so we actually tracked down a copy of that ad for her that listed all these unsung heroes, Sam Longoria, all these people that, that didn't get credited in the film yeah. uh, after the fact. So it's interesting that yours, you've got a similar situation going on. Well, I mean, the thing is back then, uh, the makeup effects industry was kind of new in the animatronics industry. And so people didn't really know how to deal with the credits. That's part of it. But also, as opposed to now, where you'll have like, you know, 45 minutes of digital companies and everybody and their mother and their dogs get credit on it. It's always been a very difficult <laughs> thing to get credit for people. I mean, I fought that and fought that and fought. You go in that your initial contract negotiations and they'll tell you before on a, on a Spider-Man too, Dr. Octopus, they'll tell you in the beginning, you know, you get 12 credits and that's it. And I'm like, but I'm going to have 95 people work on this. Like, nope, you get 12 credits. I swear to God, they're going to wheel me out in a wheelchair when I'm 100 years old and say, 
how did you make Slimer? Yeah, I, I, that's actually maybe as like a final thing. Like you do a lot of conventions, you do, you know, you, you've done them over the years. And like, I always, as a, you know, I love going to panels and I love attending those kinds of things, but I'm always kind of like holding my, when anytime somebody stands up and asks a question, I'm just like, Oh no, here we go. <laughs> because it's always, it's either the same stuff or just something where it's just like, Oh, don't ask that. Nobody yeah. wants, to, you know, that you wasted your question with that one. Right. Right. So. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. I was at a I was at a panel once with Christopher Lloyd, and somebody waited in line and asked. His question was, "Did Christopher Lloyd enjoy acting?" <laughs> so it's just like, Ugh. all right. Uh, he uh, does. I didn't ask him about the uh, Jim Ignatowski character because he fucking hates that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, did, I did a movie with him, and he he actually sounds like that character. He really. I did a movie called Suburban Commando. It was a Hulk Hogan film. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh hell yeah. We made Hulk's ridiculous armor for it as well, but um, I was with Bill Corso. Hey, will you stop being so cute? I was with Bill Corso, <laughs> Oscar-winning makeup artist, used to art direct my company. And, uh, Bill Corso just so happens to do the world's greatest Jim Ignatowski impersonation, but everybody before we went on set said, don't, 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 you cannot do that, you cannot. Don't, don't, don't bring up Jim and Ignatowski. Probably for the same reason I get a little annoyed at people bringing up Slimer. Except for you guys. Except for you guys. Right, right. There's no, no, more interesting yeah, stuff. Right. Like, I, did a, I did like a two-week, have you heard of the um, Brussels International Fantastic Film Festival? Every effects mm -hmm. person, not every effects person, every genre person has been there as a, as a guest. And it's a two-week film festival. They had to cancel it this year because of COVID, but... Um, I was the uh, the president of the jury last year, and uh, will you stop it? <laughs> and uh, I had to do so many things, you know. Besides watch all the movies and judge the movies, and the rest of the panel, you know, I had to do a master class. I had to do this. I had to do that. I was on stage constantly. And uh, at one point, I just got so tired of talking about the same old movies uh, that we talked about AI instead which I thought had a little bit of a connection, which it does. Yeah, That's for sure. Cool. Hey, look at this guy. It, it took everything, look at him, still <laughs> on the show here. It took everything not to ask you about the nipples from species that shoot cables out, you know. Uh, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you can hardly see that in the film. We did do that. They actually, they, they rotate inside and then we did a reverse <laughs> shot. Can you see that in the film where it actually comes out of a tip? It doesn't, Just you want to see it actually come out, out I think, doesn't it? I haven't oh, seen yeah, Spaces yeah, it in a long time. Long time. I, mean, oh, well, I could talk about Suburban Commando all day. Isn't there, what, 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 I've been racking my brain, there's a Ghostbusters connection to Suburban Commando and I can't remember what it is. It's like a proper, oh, I think there's a PKE meter. PKE. Is reused there, the, yeah. the, uh, the PKE meter from Ghostbusters, the, the prop is reused as one of, uh, Hulk Hogan's holding one at one point in the movie. Um, oh, that's interesting. There's another connection. Do you know what that? Do you know what that one is? You're the connection. <laughs> gotcha. 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 Cool. I'm glad that uh, we were able to talk today, and thank you again so much for uh, doing the signing with our group. We're really excited for that. Uh, we'll keep you constantly updated, and just thanks for for being accessible to the fans and and putting up with our nerdy questions. We thank oh, you. Oh, you bet. This is fun. I mean, I can't I can't turn down a, a podcast or anything. Now, what the fuck else am I going to do? That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Craig, Craig just went on alert. <laughs> yeah, I might have to. Add, uh, we might have to do another uh, follow up or something. 
No, this was fun though. I appreciate it. So, uh, oh, oh, let me pet my book though. Um, they just gone up with the publisher. Oh yeah, of course. You can, uh, God damn it. Um, well, you can still order Rubberhead Volume One on Amazon, and you can also get the uh, the audio book on Audible now. Not selling them off my website anymore, so you know it's more legit now. So, Rubberhead Volume One, you I think you can order rubber, you can pre-order Rubberhead Volume Two on uh, Amazon. But the better way to get Rubberhead Volume Two is um, to go to darkinkpublishing.com. Cool. Dark, okay. Dark Ink Publishing. Um, and get Rubberhead Volume 2, and uh, it's, it's got the Predator story in it from my lips to your ears. It's got everything in it. Awesome. The Jean-Claude Van Damme photos I hear. What's that? Jean-Claude Van Damme photos in there? Yes, yes, it does. It's, uh, it's the greatest hits of the 80s, all wrapped up in a ghost story, a true ghost story. It's a really fun book. And like I said, it's already finished, darkinkpublishing.com. Cool. I'm looking at awesome. it right now. Very cool. Well, thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. It was a lot of fun, you guys. All right. The cat thank enjoyed you. it, too. We'll, uh... Bye, Chaos. <laughs> Bye. Take it easy, Chaos. Are you troubled by autograph forgeries online? Do you collect spores, molds, and Ghostbusters memorabilia? Have you or your family been looking for a safe place to go to add to your collection? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Check out the containment unit on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at ghostbustersautographs.com.